I want to just take a moment to recognize that that anthem you've just heard, Wondrous Love, as far as I know, this is the debut of that anthem. It was written by Ron Keene, a good friend of Glenn DeLang's, for in recognition of his 25 years of service here at San Marino Community Church, and it was commissioned by the church to honor Glenn. I know that Ron Keene is with us this morning. Can I ask, Ron is way in the back, underneath our benediction window, and And he and Glenn DeLang have had a friendship that goes well beyond the 25 years that Glenn has been here at San Marino Community Church. So I'd like to take a moment. Glenn, can we have you stand for just a second? I just want to thank God for the wonderful gifts of Ron Keene and Glenn DeLang shared so wonderfully with us. Can we do that? We are here to listen for God's Word to us. We've come on this Easter Sunday to listen to what God has to say. So I invite you now to listen as it, the Word comes to us first from the Gospel of Luke in the 24th chapter. Listen for God's Word for you. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb Taking the spices they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer together? And so, gracious God, on this Easter morning we come. We come for ourselves to look again into the mystery of that empty tomb. And we come that we might not miss what it is you have for us there. So quiet now within us any voice but your own. And speak to us as only a living God can. For we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. So I wondered this morning, do you have a bucket list? Do you know what a bucket list is? I think ever since that movie by that title a few years ago, starring Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, we have adopted the bucket list as part of our vocabulary. You may remember these two men in the movie were both terminally ill in a cancer ward and they escape in order to try to work their way through this long list of things they wanted to do before they kicked the bucket. I have to admit, when you get to be my age, you start thinking more about these kinds of things. There's a point at which you have more years behind you than you do ahead of you, and so you begin to approach life with this growing sense that you should not put off the things that you really want to do in this life because the opportunity may not always be there. So what's on your bucket list? Maybe it's planning for a daughter's wedding or you're intending to walk your daughter down the aisle or perhaps you simply want to be able to dance at your grandchild's wedding. Maybe on your list you want to welcome a grandchild or a great-grandchild into the world and give your blessing to them. Maybe it's a grandchild's graduation from college that you hope to attend. Or maybe you want to celebrate your 60th anniversary. Maybe you want to go to the place where your family immigrated from, whether that was a few years ago or generations ago. Maybe you're fond of art and history and you want to travel to great places like Paris and Rome and Jerusalem. Or maybe you just have a, a uh, dream car or a dream vacation that you want to take. Or maybe you've been trying to get up the courage to actually go skydiving. Whatever it is, I suspect that on some level, each and every one of us has a list of things that we want to do and experience before the life we know is over. Now, I have a big bucket, and I've got a long list of things I want to either do or experience or become in this life. I can remember years ago, for the first time, really having to face my own mortality. It's a little sobering. I was diagnosed with meningitis. It took a long time to get over that particular illness. And in the process, I realized that I may not always be healthy enough to do the things that I want to do in life. My friend Brian Blunt writes, I have as much chance of doing most of the things on my bucket list as I have of winning the lottery. Twice. And I suppose he's right about that, so I've decided to take off one item on my list. I don't think I'm going to climb Mount Everest in this lifetime. But I don't suppose those people who went out to the tomb that day long ago were really very different than you and I. They probably had some things on their list too. But no one ever expected to meet 
someone who had died and come back to life. Least of all did they expect to meet Jesus on that day they went out to that tomb who had been crucified in the most horrible death just a few days before. That was the furthest thing from their mind. That was a completely unexpected outcome. Not even on their bucket list. Why do you look for the living among the dead, they're asked. He's not here. He's risen. It's ironic, really. Jesus Christ has died and comes to life and returns to those who are among the living, but really sort of just undead. There's a difference between living and just not being dead. Our culture seems to ask kind of an opposite question. Why do you look for the dead among the living? Are any of you fans of Game of Thrones or have you seen the movie Night of the Living Dead or any of the Dracula movies or the zombie movies? I mean, we just seem to be fascinated with the presence of the dead amongst the living. The fact of the matter is, Easter begins in a graveyard. Woody Allen once famously quipped, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Sometimes on Easter, we remember that we live in two time zones. We live in the presence. In the present time, we live with all its challenges, its demands, its joys, and its wonders, and sometimes it's a wilderness that we walk through. But we also live in the future, the future where our bucket lists reside, in the hope of some future of God's redemption. We live with such anticipation of that redemption that coming future, that it actually influences the way we live in the present. Easter is God's already, it's already happened, but not yet. The resurrection is still coming. Now, television seems to be fascinated with the field of forensic science. Shows like CIS... CSI, excuse me. You can see how much I watch that show. <laughs> NCIS, Bones, Law and Order, they're all trying to solve complex crimes, usually deaths by murder of some kind. And they're piecing together evidence from the bodies of the deceased. And almost every episode now seems to involve some kind of DNA evidence gets put into a computer program of some kind, and within 30 minutes on the show, a suspect appears and a complete criminal history, a current address. But the reality is quite different in real courts of law. They're now talking about what they call the CSI effect in real courtrooms. Because real-life juries are watching these television shows and they're expecting to be led down a storyline like in the show, 
to be shown hard evidence that brings a decisive decision, just like on TV, all in 60 minutes. They come to believe that forensic evidence is extensive and decisive, and so either there's enough of it or there's not enough of it. And of course, real-life cases are never solved in an hour, including commercials. They say now the backlog for forensic labs is 30 to 60 days before a case can even be considered. So here in Luke's gospel, we have the closest thing to a forensic case. Women from Galilee return to the scene at the graveyard the first of the week. The body's gone. There's no DNA evidence gathered from the linen cloths. No one's taking fingerprints off the stone that's been rolled from the entrance. There's no computer simulation of how the rock-hewn cave attempting to calculate the weight of that great stone and how many people it would actually take to move it in order to roll it away from the entrance. Forensic evidence is non-existent. And it's not going to convince anybody of the truth of this case anyway. There are only a few witnesses. And they can be so unreliable. Any attorney can tell you that. And these witnesses can't even get the story straight. I mean, have you actually read all four gospel accounts of this situation? There's so many discrepancies between these witnesses, it's hardly a convincing case. And maybe you and I have a little of the CSI effect ourselves. When we read these texts, we want everything tied up nicely, convincingly in this one hour of worship on Easter Sunday. But the fact remains, even in the first century, the response to what happened varied greatly. Some believed. Some didn't. And science isn't going to solve this conundrum for us. You know, zombie movies do have some insight. Because they look at our society and they say quite literally we're simply a society of the undead, not the living. Again, according to Brian Blunt, in a figurative sense, the reader of these stories or the viewer of these stories is compelled to compare the walking dead reality to our own reality, our own reality and realize what we call normal life is in itself in a crisis. We simply don't see it yet. To make the point more fine, we're not waiting for the walking dead. We are the walking dead. We exist here and now somewhere between life and death with our bucket list and our hopes for a fuller life. Doesn't this help explain on some level why we consume each other? Why we consume the world the way we do? 
Doesn't it help understand why we're so vicious? We're the dead. It shouldn't be surprising we behave in such deadly ways. Over the past few years, I've made several trips to Israel, Palestine with groups here from the church. At least that's one on my bucket list I can check off. We visited Galilee and Jerusalem. We saw the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, where the crucifixion is said to have taken place, and where they laid Christ's body on a slab when they removed him from the cross. And together we walked the Via Della Rosa, where he he purportedly walked to his execution. Then we went out to the garden tomb where it's reported that he may have been entombed and where the disciples gathered that morning where his body was missing. And above the entrance to that garden tomb today, it reads, he's not here, he is risen. It's a direct lift from our text in Luke 24 this morning. And really, the resurrection is an argument from absence, but not silence. The body was absent from the tomb. But people today and people throughout the centuries have been witnesses to the fact that Christ lives and is present in their lives. I wish I could tell you this morning I have extensive and decisive evidence that the testimony of these witnesses is undeniably true. But I can't. But what I can tell you is that I too am a witness that Jesus Christ lives, and amongst you are many of you who can tell you that Jesus Christ is alive today. And around the world, people are gathered this Easter Sunday witnessing to that reality. And many throughout the centuries have bet their lives on that truth. And they've given their lives based upon it. There was a pastor I'm frequently asked to visit hospital rooms where someone's dying or visit a mortuary, or I've even been at morgues. I've stood beside beds with people whose lives have passed. I've prayed with families in moments of their deepest grief. I've walked into rooms guided by circumstances as mundane as traffic lights, and yet as sacred as the direction of the Holy Spirit at just the moment someone's breathed their last breath and passed from this life to the next. And I can tell you, I don't collect tissue samples or take the blood-soaked sheets to the lab. I talk with those who are there and I listen to what they've experienced of death and life A few years ago, I was talking with a friend, a professor from Princeton Seminary, Dr. Gordon Graham. He recounted to me an occasion in which he was a pastor, and he had arrived at a hospital room in the United Kingdom in England 
just as the doctor was leaving the room and closing the door behind him. And the doctor commented, there's nothing more to be done. Dr. Gordon Graham responded, there's nothing more to be done by you. When you come to the point at which there's nothing more to be done by you, where's your hope? Where's your confidence? Where is life to be found? These disciples that morning must have felt that way, that there's nothing more to be done. Administer a few spices and prepare the body for a proper burial. But what they discovered was not the end, but a whole new beginning. Thanks to God's amazing love and grace. It was not the end of what they hoped for. It was the fulfillment of all they hoped for. And what strikes me this morning is that there's a better vision of the future ahead. Sometimes it's hard to believe that things will actually get better, especially when you're standing next to a hospital bed or in a cemetery. We look at the circumstances of our lives and we conclude, you know, we've already experienced the best it's ever going to be. And we often then settle to becoming simply undead, not alive. Can you believe that by the power of God, life will get better? Can you believe that where the breath of God is, even that which has grown lifeless and dead can come to life? That's the power of resurrection. Two gifts. Not only are we not dead, we're given the gift of seeing into the future, and it changes the way we live today. And all that we need to do is learn to breathe by the borrowed breath of God. And then really live. The power of resurrection is good news only when it's coupled with the promise of regeneration of life. It's not only life in the future, it's life now that's affected. A new world is opened up, and a capacity to live differently. We become new people living in a new age. The power of resurrection implies, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, that we walk in newness of life. Several disciples came to the place where he was buried in the early morning light at dawn, and he was not there. He's not dead. Jesus Christ is risen. And if a light went out on Good Friday, it's only because the dawn came on Easter Sunday. It's the very heart of Christian faith. It's why Easter is our most important celebration. What dawned that day was a new beginning. And maybe we need a new beginning today in our own lives.
We certainly do in our world. Maybe it's time for a new quality of life. We look into the darkness and the emptiness of that grave this morning once again, and reflected there are our own crushing needs and necessity for a Savior. A new kind of humanity is needed. Something more than simply flight from our past and anxiety about our future. Because those two motivators will lead to immobility in the present. Resurrection is no far-off promise. It's a present gift. It's not the offer of hope for the next life, but for this one. And the influence of eternal life can reside within us now and work through us every day. For the believer, life is full of Easter's. We live now more fully, and we can live more nobly because we know we'll live eternally. So come to the one. Believe in the one who provides pardon for your past, power for your present, and promise for your future. So let us give thanks to Jesus Christ, our living Lord, on this Easter Sunday. Amen.